You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. I'm here. Aaron's here. We're chatter. Still at chatter. We're going to be in this new studio that we are building out. All 110 square feet of it. Doesn't have to be very big. Got to make sure doing. it's perfect for you first. Um, well, we're just having a couple of issues, and we'll get through those issues and hopefully be in there tomorrow or the next day. This show is presented by Window Nation on this Monday. If you're in the market for Windows, call now. Call 866-90-NATION or windownation.com and tell them that I told you to call. No Redskin game to talk about on this Monday, but the other three teams in the division had games yesterday. And only one of those teams won, Dallas. So hence, guess who's in first place in the NFC East, Aaron? The Redskins are at 2-1. and one. They are atop the division. I believe this is true. I haven't seen this written anywhere, but I just went back in my own memory. Uh, I believe it's the first time four weeks into the season that the Redskins have been in first place since 2011. And at that point, they were 3-1, and one, and I think the Giants were 3-1, and one, but the Redskins had beaten the Giants. Uh, the Redskins, that was a Rex Grossman, Mike Shanahan year two, um, and they got off to a pretty good start. They beat the Giants, they beat the Cardinals, they beat the Rams. They lost to the Cowboys, remember, in a Monday night week three game, 18-16. Mm-hmm. to 16. Yep. That was so winnable uh, to get off to a 4-0 start. Um, and then the season went completely to hell in a hand bucket. Uh, I think they went 5-11 and 11 that year. 5-11, and 6-10, something like that. Not very good. No, not very good. Um, the Eagles lost in overtime yesterday to the, to, to the Titans. Wow, some big decisions in overtime by Vrabel, uh, the Tennessee coach, going for fourth downs multiple times in overtime. They end up beating the Eagles 26-23. The Giants, they were a smell test pick. They were the only loser uh, on the NFL smell test uh, yesterday, I had four games. I had um, the Texans, which won outright getting a point. I had the Ravens last night getting three. More on that game coming up. They won outright. I had the Cardinals plus three. They lost by three. That pushed. And then I had the Giants plus four. And, man, the Giants are a mess offensively. And I put that a little bit on their coaching staff. They've got to be a little bit more aggressive um, with the weapons they have. And I know they're struggling to block, but they shouldn't have struggled against the, the Saints yesterday. The Saints are a bad defensive team, or at least they have been to date. Um, but that's a good loss for the Redskins. Obviously, the Philadelphia loss is a good loss for the Redskins. Skins at New Orleans a week from tonight. The early point spread against the 3-1 and Saints. The Saints are 6.5 to 7-point favorites probably right where it should be at this point. Um, The Redskins defensively, I think, are still in the top three statistically. I think I mentioned this on Friday. Look, they got a dead-on-arrival opponent for the opener in Arizona that couldn't do anything offensively. They got a wounded Aaron Rodgers uh, who had basically seven balls just flat-out dropped on him at FedEx uh, last week. And they gave up three, I think, 70-yard-plus drives against the Colts in Week 2. I'm very bullish on the big picture for the Redskins' defense, that it's going to continue, that it's already significantly improved, and it'll continue to get better over the next few years. I'm not sure it's a top-three defense. I don't believe that, and I think you know we are going to learn a lot more about this defense a week from tonight because they will be facing one of the most explosive offensive teams in the league in Drew Brees 
and the Saints. Um, it was a crazy day in the NFL yesterday. Uh, the offense, the 400-yard passers, the points, the overtime games, the controversy, especially in that Cleveland-Oakland game. Yeah. Um, so lots to get to on uh, the NFL Sunday that was, and I will, but I want to start by telling you about where I was on Saturday night. And Aaron, you're a massive college sports fan and a college football fan. And I I was at Penn State, Ohio State, and State, and State College on Saturday night. It was, for me right in that group of the top five sporting event scenes I've ever witnessed live. You know, I, I will tell you, and I'm going to go through this list here and, and, and tell you more about what Saturday night was, because it was a spectacle in State College. I've never seen anything quite like the 111,000 all dressed in white, except for the smattering of scarlet and gray Ohio State fans that were there. Uh, and the few of them that were there got really loud at the end. Um, but that was, for me, right there in on my list of the top five, six, seven sporting events I've ever been to. For me, the list includes the following. Any big championship fight in Vegas, and I've been to several of them, um, it's a must-go-to if you're a sports fan that gets a rush out of a big feel event. The energy, the electricity, um, I'm not sure anything really comes close to it, to tell you the truth. I've been to probably eight, nine, ten big fights in Vegas over the last 25 years, right around there. I'm not sure anything approaches the adrenaline if you're a sports fan. Maybe not even if, you, if you're a sports fan, if you're just there. The adrenaline you get from being in that arena in Vegas for a big championship fight. Um, I've been to, I started going to those things back in the the late 80s with with Leonard and Hearns, not the first one at Caesars Palace, but the second one in 89, I went to the Leonard Duran fight three, seen a bunch of big fights in recent years for work reasons, been out there. HBO used to pay all of us to go out there and, and cover these fights and spend the weekend in Vegas, which was always fun. They won't anymore. Did you see that? HBO getting yes, out of boxing. Yes, getting out of the boxing business. God, I'm, I, I'm saving that to talk to Tommy about it yeah. tomorrow. Um, but a, a big championship fight in Vegas is really special and unique. If you've been to one of those, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you if you haven't, it's just hard to get to wrap your brain around that because you're like, yeah, it's just a fight. It's no, there's something about the electricity uh, and the energy in that building um, when when I've been there for big fights before. For me, a, a top five sporting scene um, and the loudest environment I have ever been in, still to this day, and I don't know if I'll ever change this, and maybe. Maybe, you know, it wasn't what I think it was, and I'm just sort of yearning for yesteryear <laughs> at, at RFK, but the January 1983 NFC Championship game at RFK Stadium between the Cowboys and the Redskins is still, for me, the loudest, most raucous, most insanely bloodthirsty crowd I have ever been a part of. I've told this story many times. Doc's told it many times. Rigo, Jake, all of them. 45 minutes before kickoff, there wasn't one empty seat in the stadium, and the chant of We Want Dallas was so deafening that Tony Dorsett, years later, told the story. He said they were getting dressed in their locker room, getting ready to, to come out onto the field for warm-ups, and they heard it, and they said they knew 
they were in big trouble. It was the most intimidating environment for an opponent that I think I've ever felt as a fan. You've heard people my age go on and on about RFK and and what it was, and and those that didn't get a chance to experience it just typically roll their eyes and say, come on, how loud, how intimidating could it have really been? There were only 55,000 in that building, but the way the stadium was constructed, it kept the sound in. They had these metal stands that were mobile, um, that were put in for football games. They were so loud when people started to stomp their feet on them. And yes, for whatever reason, and I swear this is not legend. This isn't you know this isn't some sort of myth or or some sort of you know yesteryear yearning for something that we've that's been exaggerated uh, beyond uh, beyond description over the years. But I swear to you that stadium, you could feel it shaking at certain decibel levels. You could feel that stadium shake. And for a big game in the championship game against the Cowboys in 83 was probably the biggest if the 72 championship game against the Cowboys wasn't. It was energy like you can't explain unless you were lucky enough to experience it firsthand. And this wasn't a parochial sort of – this wasn't a local view. The NFL – you know, you go back and you watch some of those games on YouTube and you hear Madden and Summerall calling some of these games, and they will tell you right from the get-go, the most hostile environment in the NFL. That's what RFK was for a long period of time. It was the most hostile, the loudest, the most difficult road venue in the league. Now, they had great teams. That certainly helped, and I have no idea what RFK would have been like had the teams that played in RFK not been good. But I didn't get to experience that for my age group because I remember the George Allen and Joe Gibbs years, and they were always pretty damn good. Um, For me, and again, some of these experiences are local, but they are the ones that I've experienced more than the non-local. But Cole Fieldhouse and, and Xfinity Center, Comcast Center, for a big, important Maryland basketball game, has been and still is at times one of the best environments in all of college basketball. The Duke-Maryland game for a decade plus was the toughest ticket in this city. The toughest ticket in this city and one of the most incredible sporting environments you could attend live. The best live sporting event in this city really over the last decade. Caps playoff games have been great. Don't get me wrong. But there is something about that College Park basketball crowd when you had Duke or Carolina in the building that was, well, Mike Krzyzewski told me. I I did an interview with him Five years ago, Aaron, I think it was, on 980. And I had to record the interview, and I'll never forget it. I've told this story before, but the PR guy gets on the phone and says, you got five minutes with Coach. And I said, five minutes? Okay, I'll try to go quickly. 35 minutes later, we were still talking. And a lot of it was after the interview was concluded because after I finished up with him after about a 15-minute interview, he stayed on the line and he, because it was right after Maryland had moved to the Big Ten, had made the announcement right. to go to the Big Ten. And he said, I could hear the passion in your voice about how upset you are about Maryland going to the Big Ten. And he proceeded to tell me that it didn't have to happen, that if they had come to the league, if they had gone to John Swafford, if they if they'd gone to the other school presidents, if they had been more open in the process, that the league would have bailed them out of the financial position they were in because the ACC didn't want to lose Maryland. Of course not. The, the ACC wanted Maryland. Maryland. D.C. was the biggest TV market for the ACC network. 
They didn't want to lose him, but for other reasons. They were a founding charter member of the ACC, but Krzyzewski is part of that conversation. Did admit, he said that the Maryland road game was the toughest road game that they played year in and year out. He said it wasn't close, and there was nothing better than when his team, he brought a team into College Park and won. He said there was a feeling that was really hard to explain. And, of course, the Maryland crowd was, you know, that bloodthirsty, angry, ugly at times crowd. A little bit. You know? A little bit. But it was uh, still, you know, if you haven't been to, you know, and I don't know if they'll have any big games this year. Do they play Michigan State at home this year? For some reason, I don't think they're at home. Do they I'll, play I'll Indiana check. at home this year? They, they have a bad home schedule this year. I'll, I'll double check that but, one. But, you know, but it yeah. hasn't, I'll tell you what, it hasn't been really the same in the Big Ten. There have been moments, there was the moment against Wisconsin when it was number five against number 10 or whatever it was, and <clears throat> a couple games against Michigan State as well. Let me just quickly list, I've been to Cameron Indoor before. It's great, but not for a Duke-Carolina game. That's on the bucket list. I'd love to do Allen Fieldhouse. I've heard that's incredible at Kansas. I've been to West Virginia for a night game. That was unbelievably loud and dangerous at West Virginia in Morgantown for a night game. But for me, on my list in terms of college atmospheres, I got a chance to go to Death Valley for LSU Alabama about four years ago, I think it was. Um, and that that was a scene like none other. And people were t- uh, tweeting me on Saturday night. They said, is this better than, than the stories you've told about being at LSU Bama at night? It was close, and I'm going to get to it in a moment. But I think LSU Alabama is still number one on my list. SEC, just the culture around it is so different it than was, anything else. You have to understand that there were 100,000 in the stadium that night and an estimated 150,000 outside of the stadium. You couldn't walk around, you know, within a two-mile square radius. There was no room to walk all day long. It was just one party after another one. Um, I'll tell you one thing I'd like to do. I'd like to go to Virginia Tech. I'd like to go to Blacksburg for a night game. And I actually got offered to, uh, tickets to the Notre Dame game Saturday Ooh. night by our good friend Tim Murray, and I can't go. Anyway, so Saturday night in State College. Wow. It was, first of all, probably their biggest home game in a decade-plus when you consider all of the, you know, the years and the controversy, you know, everything that went on there for, for so long. It was two undefeated teams, number four against number eight, Ohio State in the building. Ohio State really for Penn State in the Big Ten is probably their biggest rival uh, game. You know, Penn State for a long period of time in the 70s and even in the 80s, Pitt was a big rival right. but um, when they were an independent. Exactly. Um, as a Big Ten team, um, they are, you know, the Ohio State game's always been a, a, a big game. This was a massive swing game as far as the college football season oh, right. is, Th- is this, concerned. The winner is a favorite to get to the college football playoff. Exactly. It's a leg up in the Big Ten East and, and a leg up in the playoff race. Um, this was a whiteout game. Uh, you've probably seen some of these Penn State whiteout games before. It was a night game. It was a spectacle. I'm going to tell you this. It was one of the most eye-popping things I've ever seen in person when it comes to a large gathering outdoors. 111,000 record crowd. Um, not one empty seat. I'm looking around. I'm like, I'm looking for one empty, just one empty seat. You couldn't find one. The people that were sitting in the suites were decked out in white. You know, there was a smattering of scarlet and gray. 
everybody, though, pretty much in white. And at night, the way that stadium lit up, it was truly a marvel to look around at. Um, A few things real quickly about the Penn State football experience. For starters, everybody's nice. You know, I've had that experience as well. There were Ohio State fans that were there, but they were treated like courteously. Like there, I didn't see one fight, not one, at at a at a at a sporting event that's that big that that's is that important. And you got Ohio State fans coming in there. I would say out of the hundred and eleven thousand, there may have been two thousand Ohio State fans. That's it, maybe. Wow. And but they were treated well. Like a couple of them walked by me, and people are giving a hard time, but not in a in a in a threatening way. It was it was. I think the Penn State State College thing. First of all, there is, and people have said this about Penn State football. There is a cult like feel to the whole Penn State thing, without a question of it. But doubt. there's something about that place. It's in the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere, it has very much a midwestern feel, even though there are a lot of students and alum from Philly, all right? You've got a lot of Philly in that crowd, but I guess they just leave their thugdom back home for the for this weekend. You know, a lot of Pittsburgh, a lot of D.C. people go to Penn State and are Penn State alums. I think Penn State right now in D.C., it's Maryland in terms of the alum bases. Maryland, George Mason, Virginia Tech, and I think Penn State's fourth in the D.C. area in terms of the number of alum. I think that's right. I could be wrong. Somebody can correct me on that. I'm pretty sure the top three are right. Maryland, Mason, and Virginia Tech. Um, the scene, this is a true college town, State College. All right, nothing exists here without the university. Everybody that lives there works for the university or something for, for a business that supports the university or caters to the university or services the university in some way. The scene downtown on Friday night um, and then on Saturday all day, lines everywhere. Uh, college game day was there. I actually walked by the thing and took, you know, couldn't get near it. I, I and like my one of my boys says, why don't you just call somebody? Don't you know people? There? I'm like, I'm not gonna call somebody on Saturday morning to say, hey, let me onto the college game day set. I to be honest with you, I couldn't care less anyway. It, it's something I do want to experience once though. I've been to two game uh, two games in two years that had college game day there. TCU West Virginia, which I, I was at last year, right in Fort Worth had college game day there, and then they were there did, as did, well. Did you get closer last year and kind of check out I the didn't scene? even go last year. Oh, right. Okay. It was just there. I didn't... Right. Uh, it's something my, I want to just check sunlight. out once in my life, is, is that set, that area. Yeah, I mean, it, it was there was a huge crowd there, lots of signs. Everybody, you know, in Penn State gear, walking around that town. There are two main drags in State College. It's Beaver Avenue and College Avenue, I think, are the two. Yeah. And... Um, it was really hard to even walk down the sidewalks. There were so many people. Um, the the tailgate situ- situation, RVs, you know, setups with the mountains as a backdrop. It's it's, you know, there were plenty of people overserved. I saw that, but again, not belligerent, not belligerent. At least where I was, um, the game was loud. It was ear piercing loud at times. I still think LSU at night was a louder, more raucous experience, but not not by much. Um, the, the, the game, you know, itself, Trace McSorley is the entire team. He looked, I mean, he he's awesome. He's the entire team. He, he had 175 yards rushing and I think 286 passing without, without Trace McSorley, two quarterbacks in the game, by the way, are both locals. All right. Right. McSorley from Ashburn and Dwayne Haskins played at Bullis and Potomac. Um, 
the, the game itself, like Penn State's got two t- two double digit leads. They looked like the right side. They were a smell test pick, and they did cover. Yes, they plus did plus the three and a half. Um, but and I thought Haskins looked rattled for a guy that is one of the front runners for the Heisman. I didn't think he looked good at all. He's got so many playmakers, but I thought he looked completely rattled. Didn't see the field. He's look. He, he's going to get better. You can see yeah. he's big, strong, makes all the I throws. I mean, it was, it was the first time in an environment like that but, for him. Yeah, well, didn't he play in the Michigan game last year? At what, Michigan, was it? Did he? I can't remember I think if he, he did. played in that game or not. I think he did. Um, it was it was an unfortunate ending. They gave up two touchdowns late, and then Penn State on the move down 27-26, fourth and five, and James Franklin calls a running play. Yeah, that was weird. And not only a running play, but a, a, a bad running play. There were a couple weird play calls in that game. There was a earlier in the game, Urban Meyer had a, like a f- third or fourth and a half yard, and he calls this really slow developing. Like he fakes it to one running back, gives it to the other, and he gets stuffed completely. There was just some bad this, play the, calling in that the game. O- the over under for this game was seventy one. This was supposed to be a shootout, and it half it late in going into the fourth quarter it was fourteen thirteen. Um, I thought in part because I didn't think Haskins played very well for Ohio State. Penn State's defense stepped up, and McSorley's a one-man band at this point. Um, Ohio State, man, they've got some speed on defense. I mean, you just see the speed they have on defense. But James Franklin not only called a bad play on fourth and five, but he called two timeouts leading up to that play, which meant after it missed and didn't convert, he had no chance of getting the ball back because he used his timeouts on offense stupidly. Um, he went off after the game talking about how Penn State is a great program. Do you have that sound? Do you have that rant from him? Yeah. I, 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 want, I want you to play that, that rant from James Franklin. The reality is we've gone from an average football team to a good football team to a great football team, and we've worked really hard to do those things, but we're not an elite football team yet. And as hard as we have worked – to go from average to good, from good to great. The work that it's going to take to get to an elite program is going to be just as hard as the, as the ground and the, and the distance that we've already traveled. It's going to be just as hard to get there. Scratch and claw and fight. And right now we're, comfort, we're comfortable being great. And I'm going to make sure that everybody in our program, including myself, is very uncomfortable because you only grow in life when you're uncomfortable. So that was James Franklin after the game the other night. And let me just tell you that he's right. It's a great program right now. It's not at Ohio State's level. It certainly has the potential. Penn State's won national championships before. They can get to that level. But I will say this. He is um, a good coach, and the coach he faced – is a great coach. Yes. He's an elite coach yes. in Urban Meyer. Um, and the the ending of that game, there have been many of these situations with Penn State here over the last couple of years because I was talking to some some you know longtime fans afterwards, and there's been some frustration with with Franklin. And I think that that's where this rant stemmed from is he knew that people were thinking about that fourth and five call, and he wanted everybody to know, hey, I took something that was average, and I've made it great, but we're going to get it to the next level. It's a little bit defensive. Did, did you see what happened when he was coming off the field with the fan? Like He looked like he tried to go after a fan, I and one of his assistants grabbed him and, and like was pulling him towards the locker room. I did not see that. Yeah. Um, it's a tough loss, a painful loss for them. I mean, it was a... It, honestly, it was a morgue scene after the game with people walking out. Um 
Here's the thing with Ohio State, just, just finishing up this. Ohio State got a win that makes them a heavy favorite to get to the playoff now. They will be double-digit favorites the rest of the way until that final game against Michigan, which is in Columbus. But I, my guess is right now, they'll be a double-digit favorite say, that, in that, that game, that too. That smells like a 10-point uh, yeah. favorite to me. But overall, let me just say this, in wrapping up the uh, Penn State uh, you know, sports experience thing, it was an all-timer for me. Uh, it, it, there are a couple of things that, that are rank a little bit ahead of it, but if you can get to State College at night for a whiteout game, it should be on your bucket list. It was a great time. It was memorable. The game was really great, too, unless you're a Penn State fan, which, by the way, Aaron, just for one night, uh, I was. Uh, <laughs> let's tell you about Window Nation. Um, Harley and Aaron have had my back for 10 years at Window Nation. They, they bought advertising on 980 Forever. I love both of them. I talk to Harley all the time. He's hurting this morning after the Browns got absolutely screwed in the, in the loss against the Raiders yesterday. Um, but they've been great, uh, and they've had my back. And, and I want you, if you like this show, to give them a chance. I promise you, I promise you that if you're in the market for windows, you will not be disappointed. Halloween is this month. Thanksgiving is coming fast, and we're not too far from Christmas. What does that mean? It means winter is coming. Now's the time you need to start acting when it comes to winterizing your home with brand new Window Nation windows. If you wait, you may be too late to replace your old drafty windows before the nasty winter hits, so you've got to call Window Nation today, and if you do, you'll save 50% off all styles of windows. That's 50% off any style, any size, and any color window. Half off. It's like paying for the front of the house and getting the back for free. There's no minimum, no maximum purchase. Start with the worst windows or replace them all. Just don't wait until it's too late. Window Nation is making it super easy. For the balance of the month, you'll get 50% off all styles of windows, plus no down payment, no payments, and no interest for over one full year. But there's more. If you purchase a house of windows this week, Window Nation will pay your utility bills until your new windows are installed. Call 866-90-NATION, visit windownation.com by this Sunday. That's windownation.com or 866-90-NATION and tell them that I told you to call. All right, 10, I guess, takeaways from yesterday. Um, crazy day. Uh, it's just more 400-yard passers in the NFL through the first four weeks, the most offense we've seen in years in the NFL through four weeks. Um, didn't see a lot of roughing the passer penalties yesterday. I don't know what the final numbers on that were, but we'll find out short. There soon, was I one think. in the Falcons Bengals game I thought was bad, but overall it was much less controversial. All right, here's my number one takeaway from yesterday. I think the Bears are for real. I'm not a hundred percent sure that they're a Super Bowl contender or an NFC Championship contender. But they're a playoff contender. They're 3-1. and one. And if not for Aaron Rodgers and that incredible comeback in that Sunday night opener at Lambeau, they'd be 4-0. They've got one of the best pass rushers in the league in Khalil Mack. They've got some weapons on offense, including, it would appear, their quarterback. <laughs> Mitch Trubisky threw six touchdown passes yesterday. Six, including five in the first half yeah. of that game. Yeah. Trubisky's numbers at halftime, all right? We're 14 for 18 for 289, five touchdowns, plus he had rushed for 53 yards. 
He had accounted for in the first half 100, 342 yards of offense. Look, that's they what, had 400 yards in the first half. That's what the offense wants to do. That's what you know it's designed to do. If he's good, he's going to do that more often. The question just is: Is he good, or was that just Tampa Bay secondary being the worst in the league? Well, there, there's that. Um, but you know, maybe the more impressive thing is that Tampa Bay's offense, which has not been stopped by anybody, was completely shut down by the Bears' defense. Yeah. I do like Tark Cohen a lot. I think Jordan Howard and Allen Robinson. They've got some. You know, that Allen Robinson was a really good offseason pickup. There's some early sort of mojo with the Bears right now. They're not in the Rams class at this point, and I don't know where they are in the division with respect to the Packers and the Vikings, but this is a playoff contender. Like, if you weren't buying it last week after they barely beat the Cardinals to get to 2-1, and one, and that was an ugly game, although the Cardinals nearly beat Seattle yesterday at home, um, the Bears look good, and to do what to do that to Tampa uh, defensively, no other defense has been able to do that. Was impressive. Um, I think the Bears uh, look like right now, and through four weeks, you start to get a sense of these teams. It's far from you know conclusive anything, but I think the Bears look pretty good. Um, Takeaway number two from yesterday, and this is going to be against the grain for me because many of you tweeted me saying, well, there's your big coaching blunder of the week, what Frank Reich did in overtime for the Colts. So Frank Reich in overtime uh, in a tie game against the Texans in overtime, fourth and four from his own 43, he decided to go for it. Um, I didn't have a problem with it. I'm telling you, I was watching that game because CBS had switched to that game, uh, which meant you didn't get the Giants Saints until about midway through the second quarter because of the length of this Texans Colts game. But I also had some interest in this game. The Texans were a smell test pick, and I had them personally uh, for the maximum allowed with my <laughs> man. All right. So uh, I wanted Houston, t- the, the tie was fine for me. All right. The tie was. So actually. Him punting and settling for a tie would have been the right thing for me in the moment. But I'm telling you, when he decided to go for it, I, rooting for the Texans at that point, or for a tie, I thought they were going to get it. They had not been stopped on three previous possessions. They were down 18, rallied back from 18 in this game. And Houston was dead. They were tired. They were shot. And the only reason they got into this fourth down situation was because of a penalty and a sack. But there was a, a first down penalty situation. And I thought Indy would get it. I thought that it was a better than 50-50 chance that they would convert the fourth and four. They had some timeouts so that they could then you know, shoot for field well, goal range. Here's the thing. Here, and here's why I did like it. They didn't have timeouts because they took the timeout before the play. Then with the the five yeah, yard pass, they would have they would have had to use their last timeout there. Still, their chances to win the game were to go for fourth and four. They had no chance to win the game if they don't right. go for it. And here's the so in the, so let, let me just give you my my sort of feeling in the moment. I'm rooting for Houston. I'm rooting for a tie because I've got Houston plus one in this game. Okay. They're getting a point. So a tie, I win. Uh, They had already blown an 18-point lead, and I watched a lot of the late regulation on Red Zone, and then CBS picked up the live coverage um, at the end of that and stayed with it till its conclusion. 
And I just felt like if Indy had gone for it before the, before the decision to go for it, that they were going to get it. They were rolling offensively. Houston looked dead in the water defensively, even though J.J. Uh, Watt had a great game yesterday. Clowney had a great game, but they looked tired at that point. And the other reason, you know, thinking about it in hindsight, is the Colts in that division, you can't lose to Houston at home. If you're going to be a player in that division with Jacksonville off to the good start, now Tennessee off to a good start, and at that point they probably knew Tennessee had already won against Philly. Maybe they didn't, but I don't think they took that. I'll tell you what: one and three versus one, two and one. There's not that much of a difference. They needed to get to two and two, but more than that, it was the context. It was I know the field position wasn't great. I thought, and I'm sure they felt. Here's the one criticism of Reich: he wasn't decisive enough. I would have just sent my offense out there, not burned the timeout, yeah. not tried to draw them off sides, and just and gone and picked it up because I think they would yep. have done that. There was too much time that passed. They I, called timeout. They tried to draw them off sides, and Houston called timeout. And by the time they ran their the play, you know, four minutes had passed. Right. Uh, and that's that's the big thing. I don't hate the decision to go for it. I don't like the play call. I don't like only going five yards there because you still need seventeen to twenty yards to get into field goal range. And that's the big thing is that even if they got it with that play call, you needed that twenty extra yards to get into field goal range. So for that reason, normally I always say go for it on fourth. I don't know about it that time. I I didn't I didn't have a massive problem with it, and it it was certainly one of those where people are saying, oh Frank Reich blew it. Look it, he's in his look it. I sound like Tom. Um, look it, he's in his fourth game, and they're one and two, and you got Jacksonville in the division, and now Tennessee in the division, and this is a home game against Houston, who's zero and three, and you got all the momentum in the game. I didn't have a massive problem with it. Takeaway number three from yesterday: Man, is Zeke Elliott a baller? I don't know what Dallas is. I told I've told you the last two weeks that I believe Dallas is, has a, a good defensive football team. Zeke Elliott is their entire... We talked about Trace McSorley as Penn State's entire chance offensively. Zeke Elliott is everything. He had 152 yards rushing. He was their leading pass receiver. He caught the pass that put him in field goal range to kick the game winner. Um, Zeke Elliott right now in the NFL, you could argue, is a top five player in the league. Yeah. Easily a top five player in the league. Takeaway number four. Man, did Vrabel have some big stones in overtime that against was great. the Eagles. Big stones. And I don't know if Philadelphia calling a timeout when he sent his field goal kicker out to kick a field goal to tie the game in overtime from 50 yards out gave him second thought or that he was going to bring him back out anyway. Um, but I'm sure Doug Peterson now feels like, shoot, if I hadn't called a timeout, they would have lined up, kicked a 50-yard field goal. And worst case is we got the ball in a tie game, 23-23 in overtime. Uh, three for three on fourth down in overtime, including, uh, you know, and then ultimately getting the game winner on a pass to Corey Davis, their first-round pick from Western Michigan a year ago. Uh, Mariota threw a ball, you know, in a in a broken down pocket, but he gave his receiver a chance in the end zone, and they beat Philadelphia twenty six twenty three. And the Eagles are two and two, and Wentz now in two games has looked good at times, and their pass protection has been a problem at times. Um, Tennessee looks like like they're a decent football team. Look, I don't know what they they've got. They were a playoff team, remember last year, and they went into Arrowhead and fell behind 21-3 and came back and won. 
and a lot of those players are still there. Delaney, the lo- loss of Walker is a massive loss for them, uh, but Tennessee's got something to them. They've now won three in a row after losing that, that opener. Remember, they, they lost the opener to Miami in a game that took like six hours to play right. because of all the, the lightning and thunderstorm delays. Uh, Philly, 2-2. Two and two. I'm not uh, Look, I'm not counting Philly out. I'm not counting Philly as anything but what they are, which is the favorite to win the division. Um, but they've got now two losses on the road at Tampa and at Tennessee. And when you looked at that schedule, you thought those were winnable games and they were favored in both of them to win both games. With, with the injuries to the running backs and everything, there's something that does, feels a little bit off about Philly right now. Takeaway number five, Atlanta's defense <laughs> is horrible. <laughs> Mike Smith coaches that defense, doesn't he? I think he. I'm no, sure. no. Mike Smith's in Tampa right now. Uh, Mike he, Smith's in Tampa. That's yes. right. I knew that. Who's the, who? Mike Smith was was the head coach in Atlanta. Who is the defensive coordinator in Atlanta right now? Look that up, because he's got to be on the hot seat at this point. Because Atlanta's offense is unstoppable it's, with Ridley and Jones and uh, the whole gang. It's Marquand Manuel. Okay. Well, uh, update that resume. Atlanta's defense gave up 43 last week, 37 yesterday, both of those games at home, 24 to the Panthers in a win. Uh, and the other thing, just to circle back to the Philadelphia situation, remember Philadelphia could only score 18 points against Atlanta in the opener. I know it's the opener, and it's, you know, it's early. Nobody uh, Philly's offense isn't quite what it was last right. year, and that was with Foles. Right. Um, but Atlanta's defense is a major problem. And they're losing a player every game, too. I still think that they're a good enough football team to make a run and get back in, into and, – and they're not out of the race at one and three, but that's a tough start with the two home losses. Have you seen their next three games too? What are their next three games? At Steelers, Tampa, Giants. Wow. Well, they'll beat Tampa. They'll beat the Giants. Yeah, but Tampa could put up 45 on them, but that'll be a over-under if the Giants, If the Giants couldn't score and struggled to score against the Saints defense, yeah, that's uh, true. You know, they're going to struggle against Atlanta. All right, takeaway number six. The Chargers need to replace Caleb Sturgis. This guy's a, a, a one. He's a potential wrecking crew for them in, in a bad way. He missed two more extra points yesterday. He's missed three for the season. He missed a field goal. Um, the Chargers won uh, a game in which they were a 10.5-point favorite over San Francisco with – uh, with Bethard, C.J. Bethard is the starter. He got banged up late, played pretty well. Uh, the 49ers in that game had a 21-play drive. You don't hear that very often. It ended in a field goal. Uh, Melvin Gordon is really good. I wanted to mention him. Um, had uh, another 100-yard rushing day. He's so dangerous when they get him uh, in, in open space. Um, there's something missing from the Chargers right now, a team that I always seem to you know like and and, and, and think things will turn around for them. And, and they still don't have Joey Bosa out there. Uh, Ingram's a beast. They need Bosa back. They're giving up too many yards, too many points to in situations, situations where they shouldn't be. They held on to win that game, but, man, that's Sturgis. Two missed PATs. Takeaway number seven, Oakland-Cleveland. So last night at 42-34, I left. I actually went downtown. Um Went to uh, see some music, live music. My son plays in a band. Went downtown to uh, the Petworth uh, neighborhood. What was the name of the place I was at? Slash Slash Run, I think it is. Slash Run, I think it was. Um, fun place, good place, good good little music venue. 
And I didn't even check my phone, and I'll tell you why, because I recorded the Ravens-Steelers game, and I didn't want to know the score. I wanted to watch it when I got home last night, which I did. Get to that in a moment. And I didn't find out that the, <laughs> that the Raiders had won the game until I'm watching the Ravens-Steelers uh, Ra- Ravens game, and I see the score pop up on one of those full-screen Chirons behind Collinsworth and Michaels. I'm like, what? 45-42? Because... When I turned it off to leave, Cleveland had just made the first down, oh, and, no. and they were three knees away from winning yep. it. But apparently, replay came in and said, uh-uh. That was one of the worst uses of replay you will ever see, and it cost Cleveland the game. As did a quick whistle on a Derek Carr fumble. It should have been a touchdown return of a fumble in that game. Baker Mayfield was very good in his first start. Really good. Had some bad plays, but had many more good plays. You can see the potential there. But to see Hyde get a first down, that was a first down. And if you don't think it was a first down, you should at least admit it was not conclusive via replay. There was no replay that showed that that ball should be moved a half yard back and short of the sticks. That was insane. Yeah, Cleveland got completely hosed badly Raiders come down score get the two-point conversion win the game in overtime 45 42 takeaway number eight okay can I say one more thing about takeaway number eight here's the one thing as bad as that was it was a terrible overturn Hugh Jackson made a mistake with just inches to go now you can't go for that there you got to punt it I, I, if you can go for yeah, it on, you, on fourth and you're four, at your you own go for twenty, your, your own and you're what seventy five percent to convert. Yeah, you can't. You you got that's a seventy five percent chance to win ma- the game. It doesn't matter. Your chances oh, to win the game, even if you punt, are still eighty something percent because they've not, not only got to score, they've got to convert a two point. You can't give them a short field <clears throat> in that situation. I disagree with you on that one. I, I just think I feel badly for Cleveland because they are one two and one through four weeks. Could be four now. Very easily could be a four and zero football team. Uh, Takeaway number eight, I think we're on. Pat Shermer, have you seen his demeanor on the sideline? There is zero emotion. I don't know. I don't think I've seen one shot of him even speaking. The Giants take no risks offensively. They've got Beckham Jr. You got to just keep throwing him the ball. They've got Barkley. They've got some weapons. They've got Evan Engram. And they are so conservative offensively. Tough to watch them. I had them plus four. They were a smell test pick, and they got off to a 7-0 lead. And they actually, at 26-18, after they, at the, after they went hurry up, got the score, cut it to eight. They get the kickoff, Aaron, and it gets fumbled by the kickoff returner, and the Saints are starting from their own two-yard line. They actually had a chance there at the end. But, man, they are really unimaginative. And so conservative offensively, I know they feel like they've got issues with that offensive line. But you've got to take some chances, man, with Odell Beckham Jr. You, the, Every single throw in the first half was like three yards. I mean, a, a, going downfield for them is a seven-yard throw to the tight end. Takeaway number nine. The Patriots said to the Dolphins yesterday, nah, no. Not, this is not, you're not going to be 4 0 and we're going to be 1 and 3. They beat the Dolphins so badly in this game. The Dolphins, Tannehill threw for 100 yards on 11 for 20. 
The Dolphins only took 43 offensive snaps in the game. That's a week after last week. They only had 39 offensive snaps. I would love to look at the Dolphins' numbers right now on total numbers of snaps. Pro Football Focus will have it. It's got to be the lowest in the league and one of the lowest ever through four weeks. Uh, the Patriots outgained the Dolphins in the game 449 to 172. They're 2-2, two and two, which is right where they were last year when they went to the Super Bowl. All right, the last takeaway, and I want to spend just a moment on this game, was the, was last night's game. I have said, uh, going back to before the season, and even in the offseason when I was still at 980, I was like, something about the Ravens, I see it coming. They're getting weapons. Flacco's got a full off season for the first time. This is a top-rate organization. They're not getting left out of the playoffs this year. They're going to be a good football team. They've got young defensive talent. Um, but more importantly, offensively, this is going to be a this is going to be Flacco's best year. I, t- I first podcast right you've, before you've the opening. You've been opener. saying it. Um, they are to me one of the three favorites now in the AFC to get to the Super Bowl. I would put Kansas City in that class. I guess you've got to put New England in the class, but over the years, it's been Baltimore that's been sort of the the, the one team that stood up to the Patriots. I really like this Ravens team. They sh- Let me just say this. They won the game 26-14 last night over Pittsburgh. They made Pittsburgh look really, really average offensively. Average. They held the Steelers to 47 yards in the second half of that game. 47 total yards in the second half of the game. The game was very close to being a complete blowout. Alex Collins, I love Collins, fumbled going into the end zone for a 21-3 second quarter lead, and that really turned the game around in the first half, and the Steelers came down, and they were able to tie the game up at halftime. Joe Flacco was spectacular last night. Here's the thing with him. You give him he hasn't had any weapons. That's correct. He hasn't had much of a running game, and he hasn't had much of an offensive line here for the last few years. He is still one of the top three or four downfield throwers in the NFL. He is. You got to protect him. Got to have a running game. Got to be balanced. He threw some deep balls last night that were just beauties. Beauties. He's got yep. John Brown who can really run. He's got Crabtree. He's got um, Willie Sneed who's making big catches. Those his tight ends. His best. His number one pick, uh, Hurst from uh, from Georgia, right. uh, from South Carolina, d- hadn't even played a game yet. Max Williams and Max Andrews. Williams looks good. They both look good. Um, this is a good football team. And it's a well-coached team per usual. Uh, 47 yards that defense held Pittsburgh to. They were swarming defensively. I mean, Terrell Suggs looks like the Terrell Suggs of old. They're getting pressure from everywhere. Weddle is a top-rate, high-IQ player. There's some, I'm telling you right now, this Baltimore team, unless they, have, they get ravaged by injuries, I think the Ravens are a Super Bowl team out of the AFC. I don't – maybe we'll, we'll, the Chiefs are going to be a juggernaut out of the AFC. Reed always blows it in the playoffs, typically. It, it's hard to call any team with that defense a juggernaut. Exactly. Jacksonville's got a lot that I like. I, there's a lot that I like. New England, the Patriots, you know, will be there. But the Ravens – and they when do they play the Bengals for a second time? That's got to be – a lot of their division games, big division games, are wrapped up early this year. I think they, they play Pittsburgh for a second time in week nine. November 18th. 
and that's that'll be in Baltimore. Um, for those of you that are going to say, Jesus, Sheehan, enough with the Baltimore Ravens thing. I'm not a Ravens fan. I can't stand most things Baltimore. But over the last five, six, seven, ten years, given the, the state of, of the organization that I love, it's just been hard not to take a step back and appreciate how well run, how smart, how tough they are as an organization. And there's been something about Flacco that I've always just said to all those people that say that he's not a good quarterback. He is a decent quarterback. You've got to put some stuff around him, and they've got the stuff around him this year. Uh, that, was, that was actually a dominant second half, and the score could have been worse in the first half. Uh, the Ravens are, are going to be very, very difficult to deal with this year. Um, all right, uh, I want to tell you about somebody else who has joined us on this show that I am absolutely thrilled with because after many, many years of being a support um, on 980, Farish Chrysler Dodge Jeep is back with me. Ralph Perkins, my good friend, and he is a good friend, and I've talked to him a lot here in recent weeks, and we got together for lunch, but um, he's he's another guy like the Window Nation people. They're excited about the podcast. They've listened to the podcast. They know the response we're getting to this podcast has been overwhelming so far, um, and I thank all of you for that. Uh, but Ralph Perkins and Farish are back with me. Ralph and Kevin Farish have been friends for years. They've partner they partnered with me on 980 for over a decade, and I can't thank them enough again for being behind this venture as well. As I've said with Window Nation, if you like this show and you're thinking about buying something new. I give you my word that you will be happy if you call Ralph and you head out to Farish and Fairfax. They've got plenty of inventory right now, great deals right now. Any Jeep right now, you're going to save big. They're located right there in Fairfax Circle. Ask for Ralph Perkins when you get there. Tell them that I sent you. Say, Kevin Sheehan told me to ask for Ralph Perkins, and they'll walk you right back to Ralph's office, or he'll come out and meet you if he's there. He's in this store virtually every day, including weekends. Uh, but you can find out everything Farish has right now, live inventory, live pricing, by going to farishcars.com. All right, a couple of other NFL notes before I get to weekend DVR. Um, through four weeks of this season, we've got one winless team in the Cardinals, and we've got two undefeated teams with the Chiefs and the Rams, and the Chiefs play tonight. I actually kind of like Denver tonight. I think they've got a really good chance to win that. It's good, good Monday night game. Really Agreed. good Monday night game. Everybody else in the league is basically within about a game of being in it. This is the NFL typically. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is something really new. You, know, you, ha- you typically have two or three teams at the top, one or two teams at the bottom, and then like 25 to 28 right there in the middle that four weeks into the season, and trust me, by, by the time we get to eight weeks in the season – 25 teams are still going to be right there in the thick of it. Um, But it is one of those seasons where really, other than the Rams, I'm not even so sure the Cardinals are what they were in the first two weeks of the season. Because Josh Rosen didn't look great in the first half, but led a big drive to tie the game late and had them in range for a go-ahead field goal with under two minutes to go, making making some very big throws for them in his first start. But... You have one team right now, one team that looks to be head and shoulders above, above the, the, everybody else, and that's the Rams. 
everybody else, what do you really know at this point? Like, who's really, really good other than the Rams? We'll find out something about the Chiefs tonight. I feel like every other team has a big, glaring hole. I don't know if I'm, I, I know I'm on this, and I know I'm beating this to death, but I'm telling you right now that the Ravens. I've seen this before with them. They because there is a culture there, a tough culture. I just think that they are. I told you this before the season started. Eleven plus wins. I'm not so sure it won't be twelve when all said and done. Um, but there's t- there's time to, to sort that one out. I can certainly see why most people wouldn't be with me necessarily on that. I've also liked the Giants, and they're one and three. And I, I expected them to turn it around, and they looked terrible on offense yesterday. But what do you – I mean, what do you know? Like, the Eagles, they don't look like the best team in, in uh, 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 defending Super Bowl champ at this point. Minnesota's defense is so horrible. Who saw that coming? Nobody. Saw that coming. Green Bay's got Aaron Rodgers, you know, limping around. You know, in the NFC South, the Saints and the and the Falcons right now don't have defenses that that make you believe that they can win the whole thing. Out West, it's going to be a joke in the NFC oh, West. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a joke. It's over already. Um, it's it's one of those it's it's one of those typical NFL seasons where it's going to take a while to sort it out. But right now, the only thing I think you can really say that you know for sure. I think there are two things I can say. Rams are going to be a playoff team, and I believe the Ravens are going to be a playoff team. Those are the two things that through four weeks of the season I feel very confident about. One other quick thing I want to get to before we get to just a couple of of notes in weekend DVR. Um, The story came out after the show on Friday, I think. It may have been before the show and we just missed it, that – Doug Williams had been on with Doc Walker on 980, and Doug Williams had told him a story about how Dan Snyder had gotten upset that Doug had essentially made a unilateral decision to bring Adrian Peterson in for a workout. The, um, the story that he told said Eric, Eric Schaefer uh, and, and Doug Williams started talking about it with some of the running back issues in training camp, and they said, should we bounce it off Bruce and – and, and the other guys, now let's just do it. Let's just bring in Adrian Peterson. And he said basically he was, you know, he, he was slapped by like he, he would be like by a parent. Not, not literally, but figuratively, like, you know, dressed down a little bit for doing that without letting um, Bruce and Dan know. And so, of course, with that story came uh, on the heels of Tommy and I talking last week about how I said the owner's really not involved. He's just not involved like you think. If that story is true, yes, there's a troubling aspect to that story. All right, Doug Williams, you know, keep in mind, Doug also made the comment about the Alex Smith trade that he didn't even know about it, that, you know, they called him the morning after to tell him, and he was, you know, he's great. Here he is, essentially the EVP of football operations, the de facto GM, and he didn't even know about the biggest trade the team's made in a few years, several years, long time. And so admitting that made the organization look pretty bad. So admitting what he admitted the other day makes the organization not very happy. Uh, And I'm hearing that behind the scenes – they don't want Doug really to talk like he's been talking in that interview with Doc. Doc did a good job of getting that story out of Doug. Um, but it, 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 it's, it is a little bit revealing. And, and I've heard some things over the last couple of years about how 
the owner has not been very happy with Bruce, especially as it related to the Scott McLuhan thing. You know, that Scott McLuhan story is not over yet. There is still that hearing, the, well, the arbitration findings that will get released at some point, you know, about whether or not he, he should have been fired with cause versus without cause. And if it's without cause, he's owed some money there. And who knows what will come out of that story. Um, I just, it, it's, there, it's always something. Like, you know, we, we, we said, Tommy and I were having the conversation last week, what could derail a, a positive, you know, feel to this season so far through three weeks? Well, this kind of stuff. You know, this kind of stuff. And hopefully they'll just recognize that Doug is honest and when he's interviewed will tell stories and they shouldn't get all that worked up over it. What they should let Doug do is bring in Adrian Peterson for a workout if he wants to bring Adrian Peterson in for a workout. They didn't, he didn't sign him. He had to pass the workout. He had to impress Jay Gruden and the coaches. But Doug's got a, a title that would suggest to me that he can bring in Adrian Peterson for a workout if he wants to. As far as the reaction, if true, from the owner... It's not one you want to hear if you want to hear that the organization is a little bit more stable than it used to be. I will grant you that. Let's get to Weekend DVR. All right, a couple things. Uh, the smell test, 5-7-1 and one, uh, over the weekend. So after a great week last year, a little bit of a step back, um, College games did not go well. Liberty won outright. Aaron gave out Liberty plus seven. A bunch of you tweeted me tweeted me and said that you love it when I have these obscure teams in the smell test. And somebody tweeted me and said, every time you throw in a school I've never heard of and didn't know play college football, d- didn't know that they actually played college football, that team usually actually covers. Uh, Liberty, yeah, was plus seven against New Mexico. They won the game outright 52 to 43. But the... Uh, the Clemson game, laying 25, they were lucky to win the game. Um, and you had, you know, boy, what a situation at Clemson. I mean, Dabo Sweeney went on and on after the game about how this is one of the most memorable wins in his coaching career because it shows how unified the team is. And meantime, Trevor Lawrence got hurt. The quarterback that he went to with Kelly Bryant then transferring. Oh, there's my phone. I didn't turn my ringer off. Um, and... They came in with this this third stringer who throws a big, you know, pass on fourth down in a game that if he doesn't convert that, they lose to Syracuse. Syracuse must be pretty good. They must be pretty good. I guess they're at least okay. They're more than okay. Uh, man, did that coach blow it? Um, oh, well, yeah. Uh, he'll be in the coaching blunders tomorrow. Uh, just, I don't understand why coaches that are losing or potentially about to start losing a game don't understand that more time is better than less time. Uh, LSU, keep an eye on them. God, the SEC West. The SEC SEC East with Georgia and look out for Florida. I told you before the season there were were a couple of teams that I really liked that were sort of under the radar. Florida and Mississippi State. Well, Florida beat Mississippi State. The other night, their defense is unbelievable, as is LSU's. And LSU's got a quarterback. The SEC all year long, Florida LSU this week. Florida LSU this coming Saturday. What a game. And LSU's only a three-point favorite. I have a feeling the Gators are going to be in the smell test. 
the Nats finished up their season over the weekend, uh, and now we wait uh, on the Bryce Harper watch. And two play uh, two uh, wild card games or two division title games today. What a, what a crazy setup for 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 baseball this Love week. It. You've got the Dodgers and the Rockies for the National League West. You've got the Brewers and the Cubs for the National League Central. The two losers then play in the wild card game against each other. Um, so a wild postseason week um, with this with the two playoff games, if you will, to to uh, determine the division winners and. I don't know what the aggregate run count was yesterday for the teams that needed to win, which were the Dodgers and the Rockies and the Brewers and the Cubs. But it seemed at one point watching yesterday, it was like you know sixty-three to three in terms of runs. Like the teams they played had no chance yesterday. The Nationals lost twelve nothing to Colorado. The Dodgers beat the Giants fifteen to nothing. So the two teams that needed to win to force this division playoff game, the Dodgers and the Rockies, outscored their opponents 27 to nothing. The Brewers beat the Tigers. They had to win 11 to nothing. All right, so that's what? What are we up to now? 38 nothing. And then what did the Cubs do? 10 to 5 over the Cardinals. All right, so 48 to 5 was the aggregate run total for the four National League teams that needed to win yesterday. It's like week 17 in the NFL when I teams guess. in the playoffs play the teams that are. I, but it's baseball. Like yep. the other teams just didn't post yep. for some reason. Last thing, and then we'll finish up the show for today the Ryder Cup um, from over the weekend. Because I was up at Penn State, I, I, I watched a lot of it, but not as much as I typically watch. But Tiger Woods, he must have just been shot. Like for those that were con- you know, convinced that he was going to wear down during the FedEx Cup run, playing almost every week, and then he you know, wins finally in the Tour Championship. Uh, last week in Atlanta, he didn't play poorly in the Ryder Cup, but his 0 for 4 uh, result in the Ryder Cup, I think, is the first 0 and 4 result for an American player since 1979. You know, he the, he was just on the wrong side of every matchup all weekend long. Molinari became the first to to go 5 and 0 and win a major in the same year. He was spectacular the whole weekend. Um, Phil and Spieth weren't very good. Uh, apparently, Patrick Reed is upset that he wasn't paired with Spieth. He was paired with Tiger instead. The Americans got completely blown out uh, in France. But, hey, two years from now, they get to play it back over here. Uh, thanks, Aaron, for today. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to Window Nation. Thanks to Farish Chrysler Dodge Jeep. Thanks to Launch Workplaces in Bethesda. Back tomorrow with Tommy. Uh, Enjoy the day.